Revelation 5, 8 to 14. We're in the midst of a series working verse by verse through the book of Revelation. That's kind of our custom and pattern in this church is to pick a book of the Bible and go through it from beginning to end, including books like the book of Revelation. And we come to a sweet part in this book this morning as we get to hear about the new song sung in heaven. So hear the word of the Lord this morning. And when he had taken the scroll, the four living creatures and the 24 elders fell down before the lamb, each holding a harp and golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. And they sang a new song, saying, worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals, for you were slain and by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. And you have made them a kingdom and priests to our God, and they shall reign on the earth. Then I looked and heard around the throne and the living creatures and the elders, the voice of many angels, numbering myriads of myriads and thousands of thousands, saying with a loud voice, worthy is the lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. And I heard every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and in the sea and all that is in them saying, to him who sits on the throne and to the lamb, be blessing and honor and glory and might forever and ever. And the four living creatures said, amen. And the elders fell down and worshiped. Let's pray. Lord, we ask that you would give us ears to hear this morning the word of Christ, that it might dwell in us richly. Lord, open our eyes to behold the wonders and beauty of this new song, that we might learn it and join in singing it with our lips and with our lives. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen. This is one of those texts of scripture where it almost feels wrong to preach on it. I should just read it because I don't want to do anything to to taint it or to bring it down from uh, its beauty and its glory, but I'm going to tread lightly nonetheless. Well, we live in a world that is seemingly and increasingly filled with more and more noise that bombards us. There are the distracting noises of the beeps and buzzes and alerts constantly coming from one of the smart devices or smartphones that you have. And we were told that these technological tools promise to make our life more efficient, more relaxed. And yet they seem to have done everything but that. They have made them more noisy, more anxiety-filled. And then, especially if we live here in Florida, there are always those intrusive and disruptive noises that assault kind of every quiet moment and every good conversation. If you've ever been sitting out on the front porch in the morning, you can hardly sit out there for a moment without hearing the Florida state bird. That's the lawnmower and his cousin, the leaf blower. And I have it quite regularly where where I live. And then there is the constant stream of opinion noises. Seems that one of the mantras of our age is that you need to spread your opinions far and near because you have something that everyone needs to hear. So we have political opinions. We have financial opinions. We have medical opinions. We have fitness opinions. We have health opinions. We have sports opinions. I mean, I grew up in an age where when you watch SportsCenter, they actually told you the scores. Now they tell you what they think about the scores. It's all opinions. And then there's the incessant noise of marketing and advertising. According to one statistic, the average American sees and hears about 5,000 advertisements a day. 5,000 a day. In the 1970s, which I didn't live there, I was told about that age, there was 500 a day. That is a over tenfold increase of advertisements a day. And each ad fills your life with the noise of consumerism. 
get this, try this, buy this, join this, have this, you must, you need this. Well, in contrast to the increasing noise of our culture is the music that fills the halls of heaven. So in Revelation 5, what we get to see, what we get to hear is in a sense, we get VIP tickets from John to the greatest choral concert that's ever been performed. The music of heaven is meant to be heard by us as an antidote to all the nonsense noise of earth. Because what we get is we get joy-filled music of heaven, which drowns out all the anxiety-filled noise of earth. What we get in heaven is the truth-saturated music of the saints who are singing to the one who has redeemed them, which overwhelms all the opinion-saturated noise of earth. And then we get the Christ-centered music of heaven, which is meant to drown out all the consumer-centered noise of earth. But we're not meant to be hearers of this song only. We're meant to be singers of it as well. So we're meant to hear this song so that we can learn it by heart. We're meant to hear this song so that it rests in our hearts and that it sits on our lips so that we can actually join our voices to this song to help fill the earth with the music of heaven. So this morning, what we're going to look at is four aspects of the beauty of the music of heaven. Four aspects of the beauty of the music of heaven. So first, I want you to see that the music of heaven is sung by the grandest choir. This is the greatest choir that's ever been assembled. If you look up in the Guinness Book of World Record, the largest choir ever assembled that sang together in unison in the same place, it consisted of 121,440 singers. That was in the Philippines. Well, clearly they didn't take into account Revelation 5 because this is the largest, greatest, grandest choir ever assembled together, singing together in unison in Revelation 5. So you'll notice in verse 7, that the spark that ignites this choir singing is that the lamb in heaven comes and takes the scroll from him who is seated on the throne. So we looked at that two weeks ago. What we saw there is that this scroll represents God's title deed to history. In this scroll is represented how God is going to bring the drama of history to a conclusion and how he's going to bring his kingdom to consummation. And yet everyone in heaven is wondering who is worthy to take the scroll, to open its seals, to execute its judgments, to unfold its plans. And it's the lion of the tribe of Judah, who is also the lamb who was slain. That Jesus is worthy to take the scroll because in him we have this perfect conjunction of these diverse excellencies. He's the lion who conquers because he's the lamb who was slain for sinners. Well, then in verse 8, the residents of heaven cannot contain themselves. Having seen the lion and the lamb take the scroll, who no one else was worthy to take that scroll, they must sing about it. And so as someone has said, singing is the language God has given us when mere spoken words are not enough. Singing is when we must speak on a grander level. And that's what heaven is filled with. And as you've probably experienced before, singing is contagious. You might not sing out loud, but when you go through all those shops and stores around Christmas time and you hear those Christmas songs, they're in your head. They're stuck. You're singing them over and over again. Some of them good, some of them not so good. Well, this is a good song that is contagious and it's spreading. So the song starts in verse 8 with the people we saw in Revelation 4, the four living creatures, the 24 elders. But then it spreads and it's picked up by this innumerable choir of angels. So John cannot count 
these angels. So he just takes the largest numbers that were available in his vocabulary and he puts them together. And he said there was myriads and myriads and thousands of thousands. And then finally in verse 13, this song spreads to every creature in every corner of creation, in heaven and on earth and under the earth and in the sea, everywhere, every creature is singing this song. And what we're, what we're watching is like when Jesus takes that scroll, it's as if a, a big rock has dropped in the ocean and we're watching all the ripple effects of this action and the worthiness of it spread to every corner of creation. Christ takes the scroll and then rippling out from there is this ever expanding choir that's saying, worthy is the lamb to take their scroll. Worthy is the lamb because he was slain. Now, what are we seeing here? What are we witnessing here? Well, in one sense, this scene is giving us a picture of the exaltation and ascension of Christ from the perspective of heaven. So remember when Jesus was raised on that third day and he visited his disciples, he appeared to them, he spent some time with them, he even ate fish with them on the seashore. Well, then he ascends into the clouds in heaven. Well, what happened then after that? What what takes place next after that? Well, Revelation 5 is what happened. He who was crucified between two criminals was now seated at the right hand of the majesty on high. He who was humbled to the grave was now given a name that is above every name. He who was mocked by the crowds was now worshiped throughout every corner of the cosmos. That's the exaltation. That's the ascension of Christ. But in another sense, what we're seeing in Revelation 5 is a preview, a a sneak peek of what that final and great day is going to look like when Philippians 2, 8 through 11 comes to pass. When every knee bows in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue confesses that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. On that day, every corner of the cosmos will be turned into a concert hall and every creature will become a choir member and they will sing, worthy is the lamb. And Jesus will finally receive all the praise that is due his name. What's interesting for the audience that John is writing to, who is dwelling on earth, but getting a window into heaven, they are constantly hearing worthy is Caesar, worthy is Rome. They're constantly hearing a different kind of song and concert go out. And in fact, they're told that they have to join into this song. They have to say worthy is Caesar. Caesar is Lord. And yet in seeing this, they're reminded that you may not be part of a big choir on earth. You may not be part of a loud song that's ringing through earth, but you are joining in the song of a myriad of angels, of the redeemed who have gone before you, and you are singing to the right person. Worthy is the Lamb. But in another sense, this song is an invitation. There, there are many lyrics that are being thrown our way in this world of who we're to sing to and what we're to sing about. But the question is, are we joining in this choir? Are we singing to this worthy one? Worthy is the lamb. And notice how the worship of heaven is conducted. This heavenly choir is bringing together two unique things. It brings together a gravity and a gladness, a reverence and a rejoicing in their worship of the lamb. So there is a gravity and reverence in their worship demonstrated in their posture pointed out in verse 8 and verse 14. So look there at the beginning of this section in verse eight and look there at the end of our section in verse 14. What is the posture of these worshipers 
in Revelation 5. What do they do? They fall down before the lamb. What they're doing is they're showing great respect and honor before one who outranks them, who is far above them. Now, this may not be a physical posture that we're familiar with, right? As Presbyterians, the joke is that we're the frozen chosen. We don't, we don't move unless we trip and fall. That's about the only time we move in worship. There was once a joke that um, the motion sensor lights in a Presbyterian church went off because nobody was moving, and so it got dark for a second. But the question isn't so much, you know, do we have this posture, do we have this movement? The question is, what is the posture of our heart in worship? What is our frame of heart as we enter this place and as we think about what we are doing, who we are coming before? Because oftentimes in our world, we are very careless. We are very casual about how we do many things, especially even worship. We worship our work and we play at our worship. It's kind of one of the the adages of our day in many ways. And yet there should be nothing flippant about what we're doing. We're coming before a king. So we should come with reverent hearts and mindful of what we're doing participating in but on the other hand though the worship in heaven is marked by a gladness and rejoicing not just gravity and reverence but gladness and rejoicing look at verse 8 look at the instrument that marks what is done in the worship that they do in verse 8 it says that each one was holding a harp in their hands now this isn't necessarily saying that the harp is the ordained instrument that we're to use in worship we don't have a harpist here so we, we can't use one what it's saying is that what does the harp represent The harp is the instrument of joy in the Old Testament. If you want to sing a song of celebration and rejoicing, the harp is the right instrument for the job. If you want to set a mood of lament and mourning, like in Psalm 137, when it mentions that they were going into exile, it says we set our harps down by the rivers of Babylon because we could not sing a happy song anymore. But here, now, this is a song of gladness and rejoicing. Because as Christians... We have the most reason to rejoice. Why? Because we know the lion who has conquered. We know the lamb who was slain for us. And we have a joy that transcends all the circumstances of life because it is resting on unshakable, immovable, eternal realities. That Christ said, it is finished. He put an exclamation point on that with his resurrection from the dead. He was raised for our justification. He he was vindicated in all that he came to accomplish. And so we have a joy that the world cannot give and a joy that the world cannot take away because it rests in unshakable, eternal, immovable realities. So that should mark our worship. Well, next, I want you to see that the music of heaven is a song with significant history. This is a new song that is very old. Look with me at the beginning of verse 9. It says, And they sang a new song song. That phrase, new song, is very significant. And what I've come to find with the book of Revelation is that it is a book that is, in a sense, filled with Old Testament hyperlinks. So you've all gotten those emails before or those text messages where it says, click here. Or there's that that font that's in blue that if you click on it, it opens up some web browser of some kind that takes you somewhere. Well, John has filled this book with phrases like new song that if they came in a hyperlink format, you would click on them and they would bring up all these Old Testament verses like Psalm 96.1. Oh, sing to the Lord a new song. Sing to the Lord all the earth. Or Psalm 98.1. Oh, sing to the Lord a new song for he has done marvelous things. 
His right hand and his holy arm have worked salvation for him. Or Psalm 149.1, praise the Lord. Sing to the Lord a new song, his praise in the assembly of the godly. What these verses are showing is that this is not the first time in the reading of the Bible that you've heard this phrase, new song. This new song has very ancient roots that go deep into the Old Testament. So in other words, there's a sense in which this song is very new. This is the first time this song has been sung in Revelation 5. This is the, the album release date of Worthy is the Lamb. And yet there's a sense in which this song is very, very old. The people of God have been singing a pre-release version of this song for centuries upon centuries. So how is this song new and yet old at the same time? Well, we have to go back to the Old Testament. The people of God have always been a singing people because they recognize that God is worthy of being sung about and that God does great and marvelous things that need to be commemorated in song. And the prime example of this is Exodus 15. In Exodus 15:1, it says this, then Moses and the people of Israel sang this song to the Lord. And then Exodus 15 goes on with that song for a whole chapter. Why is Moses and the nation of Israel in Exodus 15 about to sing a song to the Lord? Well, they've seen the Lord crush the might of Egypt and overthrow Egypt with plague after plague after plague that showed that Egypt's gods are puny and our God is big. They're about to sing because they have experienced the liberating power of God's grace who freed them from a over 400-year term of service to Egypt and Pharaoh. They're about to sing because they just watched God deliver them through the Red Sea when they thought it was over them and then take that same Red Sea he delivered them through and drown all of the armies of Egypt. But most relevant to our passage in Revelation 5, Moses and Israel about to sing in Exodus 15 because they just witnessed the Lord use the blood of a slain lamb, which they painted on their doorposts, to be the means of their deliverance out of Egypt into this promised land that they've been told about. So given all of that, God's people sing the song of Exodus 15. And it's likely that Exodus 15 was a regular song sung by the people of God, especially at the annual Passover celebration. So every time they celebrate Passover, one of the things they would do is sing, and one of the songs they would sing is Exodus 15, because this song helped them rehearse and remember the great things the Lord had done for them. But as time went on, the people started to realize that they needed God to do an even greater work than the work of Exodus. Yes, they've been freed from Egypt, but they need to be freed from themselves. They've been liberated from the reign of Pharaoh, but there is even greater liberation that they need from an even more oppressive reign, which is the reign of sin over their hearts. Yes, they've been given a new land flowing with milk and honey, but they know they needed new hearts that would flow with love and gratitude and obedience. So that's what the language of the Psalms is all about when it says, sing to the Lord a new song. It's God's people's way of anticipating when God is going to do a greater work of redemption than the one he did in Exodus. And then God's people will have an occasion to sing a new song. So now, jumping back many years to Revelation 5. Revelation 5 is the point at which the new work of redemption is finished so that the new song of God's people can begin. This is why it is a new song and yet an old song. Because a new and better freedom has been provided. An even stronger and more oppressive reign has been overthrown 
with the reign of sin and the more perfect and spotless lamb has been provided. That his blood has been slain to cover not just doorposts, but our hearts so that we can be cleansed and forgiven of all of our sin. And so what do God's people do? They sing a new song. Worthy is the lamb who was slain. So this new song is reminding us that Jesus is the true and better Passover lamb that the people of God have been waiting about for a long time. And that's why this song is very new and yet very old at the same time. Well, as we continue on in our passage, we need to see that the music of heaven is a song with rich truths. The music of heaven is a song with rich truths. So much of the noise that is produced by our culture is really the dietary equivalent of eating nothing but junk food. Now, it's not all bad, and there, there's moderation. I definitely, I mean, I give kids the, uh, candy to the kids after service, so I do believe in candy to a degree. But I don't feed my kids only candy, okay, in case you were wondering about that. Much of what we get in our culture is nothing but soul-shriveling sugar. And perhaps you've had this experience where you kind of lost all sense of time and responsibility and self-control, and you just went on a social media binge or a Netflix streaming binge or a YouTube hole, you know, whatever the kids on the street are calling it these days. And then you finally snap back to reality after kind of just drowning yourself in just kind of, you know, mundane nonsense. And how do you feel when you kind of finally snap back to reality? Well, if you're anything like me, you feel really crummy. You feel like you've been eating nothing but junk food all day, and now your mind and heart is crying out and starving for solid, substantive, spiritual nourishment. Because we were made for God, and our hearts are restless until they are resting in him, nourished by his truth and his grace. We need the meat and potatoes of the music of heaven, not just the junk food of culture. We need the rich truths of the music of heaven, which offer the nourishment that our souls crave. And so look at these lyrics with me and notice what we need to hear. We need to hear the rich truth of the price and cost of our salvation, which is stated in the middle of verse nine. It says, worthy is the lamb who was slain to take the scroll and open its seals, for you were slain and by your blood. As believers, we need to hear that there is a fountain filled with blood drawn from Emmanuel's veins. And when sinners plunge beneath that flood, they lose all their guilty stains. As believers, we need to hear that bearing shame and scoffing rude, in my place condemned he stood, sealed my pardon with his blood. Hallelujah, what a savior. We need to hear what riches of kindness he lavished on us. His blood was the payment. His life was the cost. We stood neath a debt we could never afford. Our sins, they are many. His mercy is more. We need to be nourished with that rich truth. But we need more than that. Then we need to hear the rich truth of the benefits of our salvation as sung by this choir in verse nine. It says, and by your blood, you ransomed people for God. To be ransomed, means that all that was needed to cancel the debt of your sin, all that was needed to free you from all the bondage of sin has been paid in full. If you are in Christ, stamped over every single one of the debts of your sin in the blood of the lamb is something that reads paid in full. That's what it means to be ransomed by the blood of the lamb. So we need to hear Christ is the way to God. His blood our ransom paid. In him we face our judge and maker unafraid. 
Before the throne absolved we stand. His love has met his law's demands. We need to hear that. But we also need to hear the rich truth of the global scope of salvation. As sung at the end of verse 9. You ransom people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. The gospel of Christ reaches far and wide. It reaches across all national and political and cultural and ethnic boundaries. And what does it do? It gathers together all that diverse people into a united choir that sings the same song. Worthy is the lamb who is slain. So much of the noise of our culture is seeking to introduce division and discord. And yet what the music of heaven is trying to produce is harmony and unity around the central truth that matters, which is the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. So we need to hear and sing, elect from every nation, yet one or all the earth. Her charter of salvation, one Lord, one faith, one birth. One holy name she blesses, partakes one holy food, and to one hope she presses with every grace endued. We need to hear that spiritual nourishment. And then we need to hear the rich truth of the position and privilege of our salvation as sung about in verse 10. Look there with me. It says, and you have made them a kingdom and priest to our God and they shall reign on the earth. So these lyrics of the song of heaven would have been particularly mindful to its original audience. So John is writing to people who are dwelling in a culture where they have no status or position of privilege at all. Or if they do have one at all, It's one that is greatly under threat if they do not get in line with the ideology and agenda of the day, which is that Caesar's Lord, that you have to to go with the gods of Rome. And in some ways, we're feeling a little bit of that pressure as well. Our position and status is under threat if we don't get in line with the agenda and ideology of the day. But here, these lyrics remind us that in Christ, we are part of a kingdom that will never end, that we have a privileged status as believers in Christ that can never be revoked, And we have a promise and future hope that can never be extinguished. That we are kingdom and priests to our God because of the blood of the lamb and we shall reign on the earth. So we need to hear the rich truth that savior since of Zion's city, I through grace a member am. Let the world deride or pity. I will glory in your name. Fading are the world's best pleasure, all its boasting, pomp and show, solid joys and lasting treasures. None but Zion's children know. We need to hear and sing about rich truths like these so we can feed our souls with the meat and potato of spiritual nourishment amidst all the junk food noise of this world. Well, finally, I want you to see that the music of heaven is sung to the worthiest recipient, that the music of heaven directs us away from ourselves to someone else. So much of the noise of our culture seems to promote and produce a self-centeredness. Social media pours gasoline on the fire of narcissism that already seems to be raging in our culture. And if you took some of the most famous slogans from marketing and advertising seriously, you would think that life is all about you, right? If you took L'Oreal seriously, you would think because you're worth it. Or if you took Burger King seriously, you would think life is have it your way. Or if you took Sprite seriously, you would think life is about obeying your thirst. It's all about you. But the music of heaven draws our attention in a much different direction. Each part of the song, verse 9, verse 12, and verse 13, notice how it starts. It all starts by taking the spotlight away from us and putting it and shining it on Christ. 
Worthy are you. Worthy is the Lamb. To him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb be honor and glory and blessing. In fact, if you focus in on the song in verse 12, it piles word after word after word on top of each other to show that all praise belongs to Christ. So Christ is worthy to receive all power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. Seven words there. That's very intentional. It's the sevenfold ascription of worth to Jesus. John cares about numbers a lot. Seven is that number of fullness and completion and perfection, saying that Jesus is worthy of our complete, full, perfect praise. He alone is worthy of it. And yet there's an irony in these lyrics. All the worth that is ascribed to Christ in heaven is the opposite of what he endured while here on earth. Right? He is worthy to receive all power. Why? Because he was crucified in weakness for us. He is worthy to receive all wealth because he became poor for our sake so that through his poverty we might become rich. He is worthy to receive all wisdom because he was considered as a fool for our sake. He is worthy to receive all might because he humbled himself to the point of death, even death on a cross. He is worthy of all honor because he endured mockery and shame on our behalf. He is worthy of all glory because he was crowned with thorns. And he is worthy of all blessing because he became a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree. We sing a new song of praise to the lamb because he walked silently to the cross. Like a lamb that is led to the slaughter, he opened not his mouth. The one time he opens his mouth in that time when he was being crucified was to sing the song of lament. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? So he was silent, yet for that moment, to open his mouth in the song of lament so that we could sing a new song. Worthy is the lamb who was slain. For you have ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and tongue and nation. Worthy are you of all praise. May this be the song of your heart and may you lend your voice and your life to filling earth with the music of heaven. Let's pray.